Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 109 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. Well, matters to golf, I suppose, to keep things in perspective. Rod Murray's my name. What matters on this episode is the whys and wherefores of how the game has become supersized. On the very same day that Sony Open leader Peter Malnati dismissed the notion of angles having any relevance in the game, we welcome former touring professional and golf channel analyst Phil Blackmar to tease out some of the notions in his most recent blog entitled Golf's Biggest Self. More on that, Peter Malnati quote, and indeed Phil Blackmar himself in just a moment. But first, to my fellow travellers on the state of the game pilgrimage from the US, it's writer, blogger, analyst, commentator and founder of the recently launched The Quadrilateral Newsletter. It's Jeff Shackler. Jeff, we'll get some details about that new product in a moment, but good to have you aboard. Looking forward to chatting with Phil today. Yeah, and, and uh, good to hear that Peter Malnati uh, agrees with what we've been saying for uh, about 10 years <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, we'll come to more of that in just a moment. Back on this side of the globe, we find architect, columnist, and cult leader Mike Clayton, head of the Claytonites, a man who spends almost his entire life, it seems to me, preparing for a tea time. Clayton, it's Saturday morning down here for us, so I assume you're getting ready to hit off at Metro with your usual group shortly. I am, yeah, which will be fun. We're, one of our usual groups is so old and can't play anymore, and he fell over and um, had to have his hip replaced the other day, so we're missing Hursty, but... Um, it's so annoying. He's a, such a good guy. And he was a good player, but he can't move anymore. And he refuses to go to the red tees. It just drives us crazy. But anyway, um, otherwise, it's a it's one of our usual groups, which will be fun. It's, and of course, it's the best time of the year for the sandbelt. Of course, it's looked brilliant at this time of the year. So, it's, um, why this time of year and not the spring? I would have thought the spring going into summer would have been the. Well, the spring it's still coming out of dormancy, but okay. Once you've had to two or three hot months on the roughs, and it's it looks terrific. So. Fabulous, great stuff. I've I've always enjoyed the notion that you sort of have this regular group on a Saturday morning. It's one of the great things about golf that we often don't talk about. It's something to do with the swings and the scores. It's the it's the weekly interaction with a group and the the camaraderie that builds over many many years. So I hope you made Hursty gets better and moves up to the red tees. Maybe this will be the incentive for him, Clates, uh, to finally <laughs> finally make the move up. Yeah, if you're talking about big golf, Hurstie plays small golf, very small golf. <laughs> well, at least he's still playing, and that's a victory. So, well done, Hurstie. Hope you get better soon. Finally, to today's guest, he's a three-time PGA Tour winner, though he'll be better known to younger listeners for his work as an analyst on Golf Channel. State of the Game regulars, however, will also likely be familiar with his all-too-infrequent writings on golf at his blog at pblackmar.wordpress.com Now the URL is an indication of his grasp of internet technology but thankfully his grasp of golf is much more impressive His most recent missive was an all-in-one wrap-up of modern golf, how we got here and it was so good we thought we had to bring him on and grill him further Phil Blackmar, why not philblackmar.com I don't know, I was trying to hide for there was a period (laughs) in my life I was trying to hide Rod and so Black Philmar just kind of became the name (laughs) Oh dear, there you go Thank you for taking some time today mate, really looking forward to having a chat Always enjoy your thoughts and always enjoy chatting to you this blog piece that I mentioned, this most original one, it touches on multiple areas of the game, agronomy, athleticism, course conditioning, but it touches on an area which I think links directly to that Malnati quote that I mentioned at the top. So for those who might not have seen it, this is what Peter Malnati had to say yesterday. I absolutely hate it when I'm watching on golf on TV, which is rare, and that's a ringing endorsement for the product. Uh, and I hear the commentator say, oh, this course is all about angles. Angles don't mean anything when you fly it to the hole and land it next to the hole. Angles are not 
important. Phil, is it not the case that really the biggest change in golf out of everything is the fact that it's become a more aerial game? No doubt. Before Augusta made their changes back when they, quote, tiger-proofed the course, one of the things they said was the ball has less energy coming into the green. In other words, it's coming in more vertically into the green rather than on a line where it releases. And that is the biggest change in the game. And so uh, now you don't play to sides of fairways or spots or to try to get a good angle and let the ball release and use the ground. Now you fly it all the way back there. And that's a huge part of the strategic part of the game I think that's missing and um, I think a lot of us miss it. Mm. Clates, I think this ties directly into your ongoing discussions with Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner and Mark Crossfield and that whole corner of the golf internet that's sort of working on these systems to crack the code of golf. What role does aerial versus ground game play in the notion of strategies? Is it in fact true that angles really don't matter when everything is about carry and stop? Well it depends I think it depends what course you play. You know I carried it Victoria last week, where the greens are hard. Of course, the Peter Thompson and Jeff Ugly grew up on. So, uh, you know, hard greens, pins tucked behind bunkers, windy, and perhaps angles don't matter. But the shots from one side of the fairway are easier, much easier than shots from the other side. To the point that where from the other side, it's really difficult to get the ball within 25 feet of the hole. And the same thing happens right over the road at Royal Melbourne. If you're on the right side of the hole, you can bounce the ball and run it in, and, and, and you can use the slopes better, and you can get the ball reasonably close to the hole with a good shot. So I get Scott Fawcett's point that it isn't worth chasing angles because no one's good enough to hit one side of the fairway or the other, which is a point I want to talk to Phil about because he played with Calvin Pete and Lee Torino. Uh, but it's, it's brutal from the wrong side on, on a great course getting close to the hole. Um, I think you could argue as a massive generalisation that America has a terrible climate for golf. It's humid, it's hot, they play in the summer, it, it's soft. Um, it's difficult to get the conditions we have in Melbourne where it's sandy, it's hot, it's firm, it's windy. Uh, or in Britain, where they play the Open Championship, where it's much easier to get the ground firm and have it more conducive to bouncing the ball along the ground and more conducive to making it more difficult to play from the wrong angle. But, you know, there are two... There's one generalisation there for Phil and one question. Is part of the problem golf in America just too soft because of the climate? And the second part of the question is, while today's players mightn't be good enough to find an angle or chase an angle because either they're not accurate enough with their driver or the ball simply goes too far that you can't be that accurate versus Kelvin Peter Lee Trevino, who I assume were good enough to actually aim down one side of a 20, of a 30-yard wide fairway and hit it with reasonable consistency. So for them, it was worth chasing an angle. And of course, they were coming in with three, four, five, and six lines, as opposed to the another generalisation, wages most of the time. Hmm. Phil? Well, Clates, that's, uh, those are some great points. First, about the, the climate in the United States. I think you're exactly right. It, uh, that and uh, the fact that people have fallen in love with green grass, manicured green grass, uh, the days of letting things get a little shaggy or a little dry, a little yellow, 
Um, that's not what most people want. And so I think we water far too much. Um, but we do, you know, most of the United States is a, does receive quite a bit of rain. And so, you know, if you're trying to have a firm, a firm track and it rains and you're kind of, you're out of luck. Um, and I agree, you go to Britain or, um, down where you're at in the sand belt, you've got a great climate to be able to play that way. And that's, uh, so you're correct there when it, when it gets to guys like Calvin and Lee Trevino, Hogan, you know, I played one of the finest rounds of golf I ever saw was with Calvin Pete played at the Memorial at Jack Nicholas's place, Muirfield village there in Ohio. And this is back in about 1988 or so. So we're still using wooden woods and the old ball and whatnot. And so that golf course played extremely long back then. And Calvin couldn't fly his driver. I'm going to say at the most about 235, maybe. And he shot 68 that day going around that course and didn't make a putt. I mean, he, he literally could have shot 63 or four if he'd putted any good. And he, he could not fly the ball to the hole. All he did was land it in the, the proper spot on the fronts of greens and use the slope in the green to work the ball back towards the hole. It was, it was fabulous to watch. It really, really was. Trevino, the same way. Trevino would, would work the ball both directions. He, he preferred a fade, but he'd work it right to left as well. One thing you got to remember when you compare the players from those days to today is if they were driving the ball 250 yards, well, 250 yards today for these guys is a three iron. And so when you look at driving stats, the guys that are flying the ball 290 or 300 yards, um, the distance they're hitting it, you know, their dispersion, the ball is actually coming off the face within a range that great players would have would have liked back you know, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, back in there. But it's just going so much further, it puts it further offline. Uh, so the game, you know, that's taken that aspect of the game away. So you are, I think, in today's game, it's, it's a mistake to chase angles. But, yeah, you know, I, I was part of that debate on Twitter a little bit with Scott and that stuff, Clates. And the one thing that you can't do is you can't compare today's game to the game in that era because there are no numbers from that era. You might have numbers from today. You might think you can drive numbers to that era, but you can't. You don't have any numbers. So it's not really an argument that can be won or lost. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Indeed, just while you're talking there, Phil, it strikes me for all those all us amateur golfers out there listening. Calvin Pete, what did you say? Flew it about 235 yards? Yeah, it was a good one. Maybe a little help with the wind. Shot, shot 68 around Memorial. Have a think about that, people, hitting at distances <laughs> that are... Yeah, he was... Right. It was, it's one thing to be the most accurate driver on tour, as he was for, what, a decade, I suppose. But um, if, you, if you're flying at 235 yards, you would want to hit a lot of fairways. But he was also the leader in greens and regulation for almost a decade as well. So it wasn't as though he was a one-trick pony. He was an incredibly great approach player into the greens. As I was talking about at Memorial, he was an amazing you know, player from the fairway. Yeah, to... Uh to find a spot. Shaq, the notion of firmness being a way to test the very best, which is what Phil and Clates have sort of latched onto there. It's not a new one, is it? I did an interview with Kari Webb last year. It's probably one of the overlooked elements in professional golf in particular, isn't it? Everyone talks about agronomy and says half the distance problem is because the fairways are firm and the ball runs out. It's not quite right, is it? Firm Uh greens separate good players. That's what Kari Webb told me. Firm up the greens and very quickly you separate the best from the rest. 
Yeah, and of course we have the uh, folks always say, "Well, you, you, you get you know, just turn on the sub air and and all these things that are just so unrealistic." About as Clayt says, especially in the United States, where it's it's very hard to create true, uh, truly firm conditions, and and then sometimes when you do, uh, we have the awful. Uh, situation where the greens are super firm, but the approaches don't get the same treatment. I mean, mm-hmm. Kapalua was just yeah. awful this year, watching how many guys tried to play, nothing like what Phil beautifully described with Calvin Pete, but they tried to land it in that spot on the approach where it would then trickle on and feed down to the hole. I mean, I didn't even watch that much, and I just, every time I looked up, I saw a guy do that, and then they, you, know, you could tell they were kind of scratching their head, and it, it, it shows that, um, and the greens, they look like they had uh, enough firmness and and that's another thing people i just i i think we've discussed on this show before how many times i'll have somebody after a tour event go uh god those greens were pin cushions that was stupid and, I, and i'd say you know you're not gonna believe it but i went out after play and those things were really firm they, they really it's the combination of hitting wedges in it's a combination of uh how how often they their their grooves are uh changed out or they have new wedges and their and their grooves are great and they hit the ball higher They've got all the spin rates, everything dialed in so well that I don't think people realize, I hate to go into this, but the square grooves thing is an issue as well. But uh, ultimately, it's it's sort of obnoxious when people just think that that the golf course can be flipped all these different ways, and, and it just isn't that easy to do. Um, so uh, as a remedy for what we're missing, it's, it's, it's yes, it's uh, ideally that would be the case if the, course, the courses could do that, but they can't. They can't always do that, and and then as we're seeing out, it 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 almost doesn't matter because of the the, the carry distances are so incredible that they'll just they'll just bomb it down no matter what. Uh, and so I mean two things: one, just two quick things. I loved what Phil described about Calvin Pete, and the th- the the thing I thought about when he was saying that is that that golf fans uh, viewing that is really. Uh, satisfying, mm. and 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 there's no better example where that still happens than Augusta National. And what do people love the most about Augusta? Not seeing somebody hit a tee shot. It's that iron shot that we know because we know the course so well mm-hmm. that we know. Oh, oh yeah, that's the perfect spot. Now let's watch it feed down. And it's beautiful to watch people sit up from their chairs in person. It's just it's artistry. It's it's an, it's great entertainment. And the fact that none of the people in professional golf whose job it is to make this a product recognize even basic things like that uh, is just terrifying, really, that they just don't grasp it. Um, and it's just dreadful for the pro game. So that that anyway, I, I wanted to 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 get that off my chest as he was describing Calvin Pete's uh, beautiful way of playing. It's funny you say that actually, Shaq, because. It, it, Ball on ground is by far the most interesting thing about the game. A ball in the air is just a ball in the air. It's the, it looks no different whether it's a five iron, a wedge, or a driver. We can all recall, I'm sure, Brandel Chambly uh, anointing Dustin Johnson's tee shot on the twelfth at uh, Kapalua a couple of years ago. It was the greatest shot ever hit in golf. It was a four hundred and twelve right, yeah. yards, I think, and it ended up a foot and a half from the hole. I remember writing a column about that. Phil Blackmar, which basically said that shot got interesting the minute the ball touched the ground, and then it becomes the great game, which is the 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 thing that's really entertaining, which is will it or won't it? Will it or won't it get to the hole? Will it go in the hole? How do we sort of miss that? Because 
I was watching this. I had a look on Twitter this morning. So Scott Hend is, I think, 46, Clay. It's 48, maybe, Scott Hend? Uh, 46, I think. 46. Yeah. All, always been a hugely long hitter, bombed the ball. In his day, he was known as, you know, ridiculously long, and I'm sure you'd recall that as well, Clay. So he was talking about he's done his track man numbers with Titleist this morning and what it all added up to. I can't remember the actual speeds, 115 clubhead, 170 ball, something like that. I don't follow that sort of stuff. It all equals 299 yards of carry at the age of 46. Doesn't leave a lot of time for the ball to get on the ground, Phil Blackmar, and entertain us in that way, does it? No, and you, and you, you describe that eloquently, Rod, in that there is no decision. The ball is in the air. Well, will it or will it not? You know, Maybe if it's carry over water or an extremely difficult hole location next to a hazard or something like that. But DPC Sawgrass, no, maybe 17 there, gives you that, doesn't it? Because it's that you know all or nothing sort of shot. But that aside, it's rarely very interesting. Sorry, I was interrupted you. Yeah, 17 might have got my attention on <laughs> you too. I've just remembered, <laughs> you, I remembered your trials and tribulations as I was saying. I apologize. I didn't mean to bring it up. We'll never speak it no, again. Th- thankfully, I think NBC's quit showing that now, but uh, they seem to delight in showing that every year for about 10 or 12 years. Um but no, you're you're absolutely right. It is you you lose that feature of using the ground. Hal Sutton talked about that quite a bit as well. And Hal was a tremendous ball striker, and hit he just hit the ball on a string. And he talked about how he used to use the ground so much, and that's a a lost art. And I don't know how the the way we got here. I don't know how we get back to it, but the way we got here, a lot of that has to do with players. The 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 teaching in the game, and once we got video, the game went from digging it out of the dirt, figuring out a way to apply the club to the ball to make it do what you wanted, to a teacher telling you how to swing to make the ball do what you wanted. And with that, when it became more of a swing game than a manipulation game, then, then now the players, the players ultimately make the decisions on the PGA Tour. Now, the other tours are, are I think, uh, likely the same. The professional players will dictate if, if there's a setup starts going in a direction they don't want, well, they're going to start raising holy cane and say, we don't like that setup. And a player who's playing with a swing likes to make a swing and likes to see a good result. That makes them feel good. And it's always marveled. I've, been, I've marveled at these players if they don't realize that if it's that way, then it's that way for everybody, and it makes it that much harder for them to separate themselves from everybody else. That you would rather have more of a challenge where you have to do this or do that so you have an opportunity to separate yourself rather than being rewarded for what is just a, a decent shot or an okay shot. You know, have to, you have to play an exceptional shot to be rewarded. And, um, and that brings strategy back into the play. So I think that I think the players say and the way the game went that direction certainly played a, a huge role in not maintaining, you know, firmer conditions or maintaining that aspect of the game, Rod. I'm just wondering, Jeff, while Phil was talking there, he's right. I mean, in the 80s, the 90s, all the instruction books that came out all had a player's name attached, didn't they? Norman, Faldo, Trevino, yeah. Nicholas. I'm just thinking we don't see that anymore, do we? You can't no. you can't go out and buy Dustin Johnson's How I Play Golf. Tiger Woods might have been the last one back in sort of 99, 2000. Well, there's no money in it. No, true. <laughs> Compared that's... to what they make in other things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's part of it. And then, yeah, we love our gurus, and, and uh, now it's the teams and um, – but but uh, Phil made an interesting point there that 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 I I don't I really don't blame much on the setup but he but he is right that that it is amazing how the players do dictate certain things and um, and some of it they actually dictate I think from what I gather they would people would like to hear that they they want to see more of and set up but it just goes back again to the, there's just some 
you know, when you look at the tour schedule, they visit a lot of places at a time of year when it's not the best time. They come to L.A. the only month it rains. They 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 go to um, you know Florida would be amazing in the fall to see those golf courses not overseeded and how they would play uh, as Bermuda golf courses and and there are a lot of places they go that that there's just no realistic chance of getting the kind of golf that, that we would like, even if the it's what the players wanted and what the fans wanted and what television and everybody else wanted to see. And, and that's just, um, it's a tough thing to schedule a, a, a season long, uh, thing like they do, but it certainly isn't one that's, that's built around, uh, agronomics. Clay, so much in professional golf, golf is the last thought, isn't it? I know you've talked about this before that, and and your fellow players on the European tour in the nineties, you know, you'd want to go and play at Chantilly in France. They'd tear it up on a highway if there was a million dollar purse at the end of it. The golf just isn't the focus of professional golf, which to non golfers sounds crazy. But the actual golf is the last thing considered when staging a professional event, isn't it? Well, the golf course, yeah, of course. Sorry, yes. It's the it's the quality of the golf course as a venue for holding a tournament, which is much more than the architecture itself. It's the practice power, the car parking, the access, the room for stands, the, the ease of spectators getting to a place, um, whether a course wants to, I'm not sure how it works in America, but certainly in Europe, whether a course wants to charge the, charge the tour or the tournament to come versus paying them to come, which clearly makes a huge difference in the prize money. And if you're a professional golfer, then... For so many of the guys, the only thing that matters is how much money they're playing for. Hmm. Phil, are there are there two Phil Blackmars? Phil Blackmar, the professional who understands putting everything else aside and what's the most efficient way to get around this golf course and win the most money. And Phil Blackmar, the retired professional golfer and analyst who writes about all this wonderful world of golf that we used to have many years ago. Is there a disconnect there? I mean, it's not hard to understand why pros aren't interested in any of this stuff, is it? makes their job more difficult. <laughs> no, you're right, Rod. I, I fully appreciate where the pros are coming from. They're playing they're playing to make a living and to make money, and so I, I understand that. No, but there are not two Phil Blackmars. The, the thing is, is, I was never a very good ball striker. I didn't hit it as good as Mike Clayton did. I I was never in the top 155 in di- driving accuracy at a time that it really paid to hit fairways, and I was only in the top 125 in green regulation twice in a 16-year career on the PGA Tour. And so I had to find a way to be competitive at least enough uh, enough weeks out of the year that I could maintain my playing status and provide for my family, wife, and four kids. And for me, uh, playing that way, I, I came to use to settle on using curve as a way to play with no confidence. I never had confidence in where my ball was going to go. And so I would find a shot that I thought I could play that allowed me to play with a degree of certainty or at least commitment to try to play a shot instead of trying not to have a bad result. And so I used a lot of imagination in shaping shots and doing things as a way really to control my mindset and the mental side of the game. And the game favored that at that time. Now, I played it. I started on tour in 85. And then by the mid-90s, we were starting to go the other way where it's all metal woods, which favored more of a swing in one shot. And, and it became harder and harder for me because the style I grew up playing was beginning to not fit the equipment anymore. 
So I played through that, that Genesis with the modern equipment from the old equipment. And the game I grew up playing is a game I, I enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone should play the game that I want to play, but that is the game that I want to play. I grew up playing that game. I, I'd like to still play that game. And, and if I can jump on my, my horse for just a second here, the one thing we don't have, for those of us that want to go back and play the smaller game the way it used to be played, is we don't have a ball. There's no, no one makes a ball that will do what the old Bellotta balls would do. They're all designed to launch high, low spin, and not curve. And I really think that there's enough people out there that would, would buy and support a ball that would allow you to go back and play the tees and you can play the red tees, whatever tees you want, go play the old venues uh, and, and enjoy playing the game the way it used to be played. And I think that's one solution to this distance problem. Mm. Four, four kids and playing golf for a living, Phil. Good Lord, it's a, it's a wonder you didn't go completely mad. That's a I, re- did. I did go mad, <laughs> that's right. That's a recipe <laughs> for disaster. Before we come back to it, I want to get you to outline some of the points that you made in this blog and some of that bigger picture, but just on the distance. We see a lot and everybody posts their numbers on TrackMan, and, and Scott Fawcett does a lot of this. He'll get an old club and an old ball and show you that you can hit it a long way. Phil, you were a long hitter in your time uh, relative to the to the fields. Could you have hit it further? And why didn't we see guys hitting it over 300 yards the way we constantly see demonstrated to us that it was possible with the old equipment? Why didn't we see that on a regular basis? Well, I, I finished second in the national long drive here in the United States one year and fifth the next year. My clubhead speed in college was measured with a 44-inch wooden-headed steel-shafted driver that weighed about a pound and a half. Um, my clubhead speed was 125, and I got it up to 131 wow. with that club. <clears throat> and so, yes, you could, I could hit the ball extremely far at times when I wanted to if I flighted it good. But here's the, the biggest point. The reason players didn't try to max out except when they felt like it was worth the risk, <clears throat> the sweet spot was so small. I mean, you're talking about the size of the nail on your thumb. And if you missed it, the penalty was so severe, the ball would go so far offline or so short or do things that you didn't want it to do that you tried to, you tried to swing as hard as you could but control contact because the, the penalty for not controlling contact was, was just uh, would absolutely eat you up. So for good players in the modern era, that might be the biggest change. You can swing at 110%, for want of a better term, with the biggest club in the bag being the driver, with much less concern about how far offline and some of the crazy things that might happen if you don't hit the centre. No doubt, no doubt. You might miss the fairway, but you don't miss the planet. Yeah. And I got plenty of examples where I missed the plan. <laughs> <laughs> I got those balls scattered all over the universe that I hit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you watch Justin Thomas today hit a tee shot when he wants to let it go a little bit. Both feet are off the ground. Yeah, indeed. He's not even touching the ground. Hmm. And um, that was such a risky proposition back in the day. Yeah. You would see it occasionally. I mean, Norman was one who went at it really hard, didn't he, Clates? You could see. You know, every now and then you'd see the, the shaft whip across his back in the follow-through and sort of rebound. He would go at it really hard sometimes. But for most players, as Phil's saying there, I think, Clates, it wasn't sort of worth the risk. You were never kind of a power player, but was that your sort of summation of how that worked? Yeah, I mean, Greg was a phenomenal talent, obviously, hitting, smacking that driver, swinging as hard as he did and hitting it so solidly. But, yeah, there was more emphasis on like, Graham Marsh was the quintessential Australian player. Who Marshy would tee it up and hit it 250 or 60 yards down the middle of. Well, he certainly didn't miss any many fairways, but he hit it. He hit the ball really solidly. A beautiful flight, 
But his emphasis, because he was mentored by Peter Thompson, was to put the ball in play and play from there. So that was how, yeah, and it, and it was windy in Australia. And in, in Melbourne on the sandbelt, there were, there's not so much now, but there, were t- there was tea tree down the sides of the fairway. So if you got in that, you're unplayable. And so there was a massive emphasis on hitting the fairway and putting the ball in play because you couldn't play if it was out of play. Because if you missed fairways in Melbourne, it was a, you weren't like you were playing out of the trees because you, you didn't play out of the trees in the sandbelt. You, you dropped it out of the tea tree on many occasions. So it was, but, but I was, you know, thinking, Phil, you were six foot five, right? Uh, six, seven and a half at my tallest before gravity got hold of me. So, so is, so is one of the biggest changes in the game since the mid eighties that that started making, because graphite was, was lighter. They could make clubs that were longer. So, we, so we've seen more. I mean, you're a unbelievably unusual. Well, well, your size, it would still be unusual, but it was unusual to see a great player of Weisskopf's height or Nick or Felbo's height at six foot three. Because, you know, the, the word was that it was, well, it's difficult to play if you're taller because your levers are longer. And you know, the great players were Palmer's size and Nicholas's size and Sneed's size and even Hogan. But, but now, with the lightness of the shaft and the, and the club being two inches longer, it's much easier for a guy your height to play. I mean, well, George Archer was the great tall player of the era before you at six foot six, but he had his knees bent so much just to get down to the ball. But, you know, it's um, so a roundabout way of getting to the point is that the longer drivers made it much easier for taller players to play the game well. And, of course, taller, taller players are much more likely to hit the ball a long way because they do have the long levers. Well, more so, more so than the driver, Clates, the, the irons and the ball has made a huge difference. Um, you can use clubs that are longer now and the way the ball is designed. You know, think about Nicholas. Nicholas had the ability to hit it really far in his day, but he would hit a seven iron 155 yards. He could hit it a lot further than that if he wanted to, but he didn't because you were trying to control your distance. And the old ball spun so much that if you hit it really hard, you got a lot of spin on it, there's no telling you know, how much distance you might lose, particularly if there's any wind whatsoever. In addition to that, the grooves were so small. And I think, Rod, you may have touched on this, or Jeff, you may have touched on this earlier, changing the, the wedges out every week. I was on the driving range with Tom Weisskopf in 1985 at Hilton Head, and he's hitting these beautiful wedges off this half-inch long ryegrass. I'm just marveling at his trajectory. And he got done. I said, can I look at your wedge? He said, sure. And I grabbed it. In the middle of the wedge, where the sweet spot, there was not a groove on it. It was flat. It was flat as your thumbnail. And um, the ability to trap the ball and control the ball without having these grooves has been a huge, huge, you're exactly right. That's been a huge part of it. But the distance part, Clayton. I I tried some irons one time. I'm so tall, I have short, short arms. My dad was a club maker, and he talked me into irons that were three inches over length. And I tried them at the Tournament of Champions in La Costa. And on the third holes of par three, it was playing uphill into a little breeze, about 185 that day, and I hit a seven iron, and I flew it over the back bunker. And people might think that it's great to hit your irons really far, but at least your scoring irons from six or seven iron down, it's better to hit them short because there's you, you're able to control your distance better. And... I could I could not control my distance with the long clubs at that time. So I think the the ball and the shafts and the irons have made have had more of a profound effect while we're seeing taller players now. 
Although, Jeff Shackleford, we might be moving into a new era of experimenting with longer clubs, that Scott Henn tweet that I mentioned earlier was he was experimenting with a 47-inch driver. Bryson's talked about putting a 47-inch driver in play. Are we about to see – are we on the cusp of something new, Jeff Shackleford? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's – you can see where it's headed. And uh, and by the way, I love it that tall players – and Phil, probably more than just about anybody on the planet can attest to this, that it was – for for a long time, you were discouraged. Golf was not a tall man's game, and, and my dad was a young player, and you know he I, I know he was inspired by uh, George Archer and and seeing the tall and Weisskopf, the tall guys could do it, and now it's going the other way, where where and we've of course hit this on uh, state of the game before that there are young players who are or parents who are discouraged that their child's not going to get big enough for the game, which is just insanity that it's going the other way. Um, and all of I, you know, and, and we, 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 to prevent us sounding like, you know, the grumpy old men, I, what, what I think we, we lose sight of in this discussion always is, um, or what gets frustrating, if you will, is that, that with some, some remedies, with some tweaks to the existing rules, um, a lot of these things could be diffused or, or the, the course that we're on could be altered in a way that doesn't allow these trends to get to where they discriminate against certain people of certain height or that the game is only played one way. And that's what I, I'm now increasingly uh, just blown away by, and, uh, that these organizations have all the information. They know what's wrong. And they that case they cannot seem to make that look we're not we're not going to take all these ho- things from you and and make you hit it 30 yards shorter and affect the average player we're we're going to make some r- tweaks to our existing rules that ensure skill is protected and that a variety of ways of of getting the ball into the hole can still be part of the game and i believe the reason they can't make that case is that the game is now uh, viewed as as a player's game, the, the the elite player is is a special human being because they golf their ball well, and these organizations are scared to death of of them. They they're they're jock sniffers. They worship them. They they don't know how to say they want to be on a first name basis with them, and they don't know how to say, uh, hey, look, we 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 got to have these rules. This is this this is to protect the game, and they they just won't do it, and. Um, and being a player's game is really working out for the sport so far in the early part of 2021. <laughs> so I won't uh, go down that rat hole, but uh, it's been a rough two weeks for, for, for holding up players is bigger than the actual health and, and well-being of the sport. And I'll stop ranting now. The lunatics in charge of the asylum idea, isn't it, uh, in many ways? Ironically, though, Shaq, many of the very best players would probably support the sort of thing you're talking about because they recognize as you pointed out. I know. <laughs> that that their advantage only gets bigger the more difficult you make it at the elite level. Yeah, but that's a hard, and we've talked about this. It's a hard case for them to make because then it's selfish, and it's it shouldn't be their job. It shouldn't be Tiger Woods' job to say, "Hey, I got screwed out of a bunch of wins because you you guys didn't do your job." Or Phil Mickelson danced with it briefly, but now he's back to you know he whatever and and a lot of that's just they have financial interests and mind, they know those people don't want to hear them saying that but i i think there's just no question that s- several elite players and great generational talents and i wrote about this in the the first uh quadrilateral uh, newsletter that 
they they um, you know they're they're kind of getting shafted a little bit, and they're it's harder. It's going to be harder for those those truly incredible players or just very good ones or people who play the game a little bit differently to stand out. And then we're going to see this rapid turnover and the game's less interesting because of it. And, um, and it shouldn't be their job to have to make that case. It should, there should be people who either are worried about the, the, the sport as a product or people who are governing bodies who are charged with understanding the, the, and thinking, down the road as to, to what to to regulate and what to uh, uh, allow as uh, part of the normal uh, progress in the sport. It might not be deliberate, Clates, but it's it, it's sort of professional golf's desire in many ways to take what they see as success from other sports, isn't it? Um, this Golf's always been very different. You know, just the fact that players played into their 50s <laughs> at the highest level, sometimes, you know, still at the highest level on the, the smaller tour. But what, what Jeff's describing there is quite right. Shorter careers, higher turnover, more explosive sort of stuff. It's more a football kind of culture, isn't it, where it's a, it's a perennially young person's game at the top level. Am I right about that? Or have, have I ever well, said On the tour in America, but I think... Yeah, it's it's a different market subtly in America versus what it is in Australia and Britain, perhaps, where there's more of a reverence for the you know how far the ball goes. And we were talking about Corey Pavin yesterday, Phil, and it came up if Corey Pavin was 14 years old now with the body he had, could he become one of the best players in the world? And would a 14 year old Corey Pavin have adapted to today's equipment and become a long enough hitter to be able to compete or does someone like that just have no chance ever to get to the top of the game again? Which is why golf is such a great game that a guy like Corey Pavin or Kelvin Pete could become one of the best players in the world despite not having the physical attributes of Faldo or Ballesteros or Palmer or Nicholas or but they could get around another way because they were so clever and so brilliant at their version of shot making, which was just, it wasn't any better or worse than Sneeds or Nicholas. It was just different. But, you know, it was the modern game, the modern big game that you talk about. Has it driven those guys out of the game completely? Not completely, but it, it's a, certainly a different equation for them. I mean, Jeff was alluding to skill sets and being eliminated. And, you know, the more skill sets, if you, if you think about a round of golf being a test, the longer the test, the more questions on that test, the more opportunities for a player to either make up for weak areas or to separate himself. And the shorter that test gets, the more skill sets are eliminated, then the more difficult it is for a player to do that. Now, so if you take a player that doesn't have length, Corey Pavin at 14, uh, I think in order for him to have competed on the tour today, he would have had to have radically changed his golf swing at that age and gone down a different path and he would have had to start working out with weights because i don't think that you can consistently win on tour today if you're if you're a, a short hitter you know you've got to be at least average if not above average and um because too many of the skill sets that he possessed other than distance aren't rewarded quite as much as they once were um and too much pressure put on the other side of the game to compete and it's been shown that the one thing that separates players on the tour more so than anything else is strokes gained or proximity to the hole with your approach shots. And if one guy's hitting wedges to eight irons and the other guy's hitting six irons and five irons, who are you going to bet on? You know, and uh, 
it's not it's not a complicated equation anymore, and it's just, it's really kind of too bad that it's that it's gone that way. Um, I'm curious, Jeff. You mentioned that that you had some remedies in setup. I'm curious. I wonder what those are. Uh, well, I would. I mean, I would love to start with how many dimples are on the golf ball and find out what happens when we take uh, fifteen or twenty dimples off the ball. And the USGA report that hit on aerodynamics pretty repeatedly, and I believe it's uh, was was not very subtle. What um, changes in, in in dimple design and the number of dimples uh, has done for uh, the uh, 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 golf ball and its ability to travel a certain way and not and and not uh, be able to be moved as much. Um, so that'd be number one. Uh, I'm I, uh, very fascinated by tee height, which is is kind of a going to become a, a thing now. That um, I mean, it's it's I don't like Faldo's idea of just taking away the tee and things like that. Seem ridiculous, uh, but. Uh, Bryson really has made huge strides with these, these amazing carries. And I, and I, I hate picking on somebody cause I admire, I admire what he does and outsmarting, uh, the, the rules and outsmarting, uh, things and, and we'll see if it, it holds up. But I, I admire really his creativity and drive to do that. I just am disappointed that the, that the uh, rules allow for for some of it in, in a way that's just not good for the the, the game. But uh, he has made huge strides, as I understand it, going from going to a four inch tee, and that number four inches in the rules was literally. I I, I know I've asked somebody who was very involved in that, and they gave me an amazing story about it, and they literally just picked that number to basically move the meaning along because the USGA and RNA <laughs> get so many crackpot. Uh, inventions related to the T. I had no idea of that as well. They get, they just get a ton of submissions every year. Of this T will be the thing that uh, uh, allows you to pick up ten yards. And uh, the the in, the length though was never something they thought about until the launch angle approach has really started to to take hold with TrackMan and a lot of smart people figuring out ways to to. Uh, manipulate launch conditions so i mean things like that phil where if we we just made the tee have to be three inches and 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 dimples on the golf ball and um i yeah i just want to start i would love to just see what happens and see some of the data what happens when you when you make small changes like that i think we'd be shocked at, at how quickly and i think you could speak to this how quickly when that ball starts to to move a little that it then impacts this this just just happy Gilmore approach, and um, and if they can still pull it off uh, with some of those little tweaks, that's great. The driver head's a more complicated one, but I also believe the face, the launch conditions of the face, they touch on regularly in that report. That's another place where probably with a little less spring-like effect, they can they can um, they can impact these uh the, the carry distances and therefore the 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 mindset uh of where we're headed with with launch angle uh golf hmm. but do you have any i mean i would love to hear what, those, those to me are just 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 i mean it's just some of the things that obviously the driver head size is a controversial tough one but i would love to to to, to hear if you've seen any in particular well i think i think you touched on it earlier in the show the grooves 
I think that if you made the grooves, I don't think they went far enough when they they Man. came out with the new groove rule that year. That, that uh, if you had grooves that approached what we used to play with 30, 30 90s that were so shallow, and and you take into effect that players are going to have new clubs every week, um, and you get a groove that you would really bring accuracy back into play. Uh, also, the curvature of the ball, I agree wholeheartedly because. Not only do you get a variance in accuracy, but you get a variance in distance. And the ball, if the ball curves more, it also will upshoot into the wind and, and curve offline with the wind. And relative to the ball curving offline, hitting really hard tee shots, I was always a, a proponent of the fact that if you could finish the hole with the ball that you started the hole with, you usually scored better. <laughs> and that was one of my golden rules I, that I violated quite often. And you might bring that back into play. Yeah. I like the usually in that sentence, Phil. Yeah, you usually, yeah, usually scored better. Yeah, that's lovely. Lovely caveat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a little bit smaller, smaller, a little bit smaller driver head to eliminate some of the spring-like effect, or maybe a, a minimum on the thick the wall thickness of the face of the driver to eliminate some of the spring-like effect. I think would would do a little bit. Um, beyond that, I, I, the grooves and the ball, I think, are the two areas that you could really get at it. I'm curious. You know, if, if you guys, Mike or Rod, if you guys have any other thoughts. Uh, well, no, I'm well out of my area of expertise. Clates, you can play. <laughs> what do you reckon about what the boys are talking about there? Well, yeah. You know, the, I guess the Polara, that ball the American company bought out in the mid-'70s, was the first one to, or one of the first ball companies to strike upon the, let's change up the dimple patterns that, um improve the aerodynamics of the golf ball. And the Dunlop came out with the DDH, and now the ball is so much more sophisticated in terms of the dimples on it and how they position them and the size and the depth, I assume, of them. Literally space-age stuff is research is what's gone into that, hasn't it, Clates? Literally yeah. wind tunnels and computers and extraordinary amounts of research into how to make a golf ball stay in the air on a, uh, yeah. on a, on a given yeah. line. So, you know, I mean, clearly changing the dimple pattern is one way you can make the ball go shorter or, or certainly or, or make it more difficult to use in the wind. And, you know, we grew up as windy as it was playing in Australia. If you were going into a decent wind with it, with an iron, the last thing you wanted to see the ball doing was spinning up mm. and just dying and falling down short of the green. So you always take you know, one or two points, pitch a low four rather than trying to hit a hard six. That was just how you played, and it's actually tricky. I carried for a kid and a good player in the Victorian Open last year. And he was asking me about clubs. You know, what do you think here? And I said, look, I'm always going to see more club than you are because I still see the ball spinning up, and I still hate that seeing a ball do that, even though it doesn't do it anymore. So I'm always going to see a different shot than you are. So I'm going to see a low pitch six when you're going to see a hard eight. And the irony was, by the end of the week, he'd actually gotten really good at taking the longer club. You know, he was taking a seven instead of an eight or a four instead of a six and pitching the ball through the wind, and he was actually really good at it. And he'd never thought to do it before. No. He could do it, which, which, you know, I think sometimes people think that, you know, the cranky old guys like us dismiss how good the modern player is and say, no, you know, I was no. better back in my day and Trevino and Pete and Pavin and Nicholas and... You know, I'm amazed at how good these guys are now. They're incredible players. The techniques are much – it's certainly more consistent. There's much more of an orthodox swing. 
I'm amazed at how well they play. And I think, going back to an earlier point, I think that if the equipment was more suitable for you, the best of those best players would it would be something easier. But much more entertaining for us to watch it. Oh, they're so much better. Yeah, because they, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, you know, the tour want to create, well, always the way to create stars was to have guys who would win more often than the others. Palmer, Nicholas, Hogan, Sneed, Woods, Seve, Norman. So the more difficult you make the game to play at the top level, the more likely you are to have the most skilled players dominate the tour, which is not to say the most skilled players don't dominate the tour now. They no, it would be hard to argue that Kepka and Johnson and DeChambeau and Thomas and Rory aren't the most dominant players because they are. Yeah, well, but uh, it's a point uh, I always try to make. Plates, do you do you agree with that? Idea, or do you do you have feelings uh, of kind of what I hit on in that that first newsletter that uh, that that the common? I mean, it's a combination of things. And, and Phil, you've seen it too with the money change. Uh, there's a combination of things that it seems to me it's going to be very hard to see somebody play really well for a long time, either either because of money, uh, increased injury, or uh, just the way the game's played. That it's it it mutes certain el- super elite talents, or it, it diffuses those, or it elevates people who are really great, but 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 not quite at that next level. Do you agree that that's that is what we're facing um, with with the, the top of the game? Me, um, yeah. Well, both of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, well, well, the thing is, they make so much money that the ones who don't truly love to play, they're going to play until they make enough, and they're out of it. And you, you know, you wonder whether they're going to get injured more. They go so hard at the ball. Um, yeah, you know, the two points about, you know, do, do you have someone like Tiger who plays as long as he does ever again? And and people always say that we're never going to see that again. I can remember when there was a long period, Phil, that you played through when there were different winners of the major. You know, it went from, you know, Sloman, Tway, Mize, that, that sort of era when there were 20 or 30 or 40 majors won by different players. And, everyone, every, you know, the word was, everyone was saying, these players are so good now that no one's going to dominate the game again. And then who, who, who turned up and dominated the game like no other moves? Tiger Woods. So it's difficult to look into the future and, you know, Sanderson's never injured and a freak at 60 years old. I mean, who's to say someone like Snead can't turn up again and, have the amazing long career he did. Well, there's one out there somewhere, Clades. It's one of the great things about golf, isn't it, Phil? We know there's – and it might not be quite in our lifetime. They tend to come along a little perhaps less regularly in golf than necessarily others. But the next Tiger, for want of a better term, the next Jack, they can't be that far away. They're, they've already got a club in their hand, I would suggest. Don't you reckon? No. Yeah, there's, there, there will be more. The I think the defining factor – and I think – I think there's more and more research being done in this in the mental side of the game and in the brain. You know, Tiger, Tiger's mind is just incredible. And, the, you know, how he was taught, you know, by his dad, who was a special forces um, in the Army that, that did stuff, so, the Marines that did stuff, you know, to him at a young age. And Jay Brunza, who was also a military 
psychologist did certain things in his mom with meditation and, and Eastern philosophy, the combination of those things. And Jack just seemed to just have that. And Jack is fascinating to talk to about some of those things. I asked Jack one time, okay, you got nine holes to go. You're on the back nine. You're tied to the lead. Does, do things speed up or, you know, what do you do? Do you, you, you try to handle, how do you handle that speed? Well, no, I just, everything slows down. You know, Tiger said the same thing. The great ones are able to slow time down. They can control the clock. And there will be there will be others to come along that will be able to do that. I think one of the biggest things, you know, there's always going to be players that want to be great, that are that their goals are beyond the money. And the money will eliminate a bunch of them. But there's always going to be that guy, that woman that, that whose goals reach far beyond the money. But one of the things that you have now that you didn't have back before is you have social media and 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 so much media covering it that you've got to have some pretty thick skin. You've got to not look at things because there's always going to be somebody out there taking a shot at you. And I don't care who you are. Those those shots over time can you start to feel a little bit like a piece of Swiss cheese. They're knocking holes out of you, and pretty soon there's not enough cheese left. Yeah, the, the scrutiny is off the charts, isn't it, if you've got any sort of profile uh, in professional sport? And particularly in golf, we've got our own sort of corner of the internet, don't we, Jeff, really? The golf media, I think, is a bit different to most other sports. There's a, it's a big conglomerate of fans and bloggers and professional journos, and we're all in it together, including other players. You see players taking shots at other players these days on social yeah. media. It's a different world, isn't it, in that way? Yeah, I don't know if it's it, it's reached. It's not like some of the other sports. I think the golfers tend to be a little bit more uh, not not prepared for it. Let's put it that way. When it does happen, um, and it's, so it's it's definitely uh, it feels right. It's 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 another component in this that has to to add to your um, to the to the pressures you feel. The, you know, the the counter to that is well, they also it, it helps their image and and they. Uh, I think certain players develop fan bases because of it, so it's a positive um, that way. Uh, I'm really curious to see, though, where it goes with uh, gambling in golf um, in terms of scrutiny. And, you know, I thought we were supposed to be getting injury disclosures by now uh, from the tour. That was something I know was discussed that we need to know somebody's battling. a wrist injury this week at Sony. I, I thought we were supposed to get that information for the betters. And at some point, some of those things will start to crop up. And I'm not sure how the players will will react to that, to having to disclose things. Or uh, or if somebody goes takes to Twitter and says, so-and-so is going through a divorce. Maybe that's why he shot 80 today. And things that players of the past would not have had to have dealt with, either because of social media or because of uh, the gambling That's that's such a... Uh, getting pushed so hard by the, the, the tour now. And I, I just don't sense they're ready for that. And I don't sense they thought through all those ramifications, uh, either in person and, and when somebody can interfere with the competition or when somebody could, could troll somebody, um, with a, with on uh, social media with a, uh, Either trying to just report information to betters, or because they're a they're a they're a, a troll and they want to get in the player's head and they have money on somebody else, no, I, or on or or they bet against uh, the player and bet the, on them to miss a cut or something like that. 
Even worse it's, when the crowds uh, come back. It's a little scary. Even worse when the crowds come back, shake, you know, people screaming out in the middle of backswings and other sorts of things. I, I don't see how that doesn't happen. No. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, you do caddies, will, uh, we've discussed Kick Caddies have already said, yeah, I've heard guys for a dollar bet, you know, jangling the change in the pocket. You know, what are they going to do when there's real money on the line? They have an app on their phone that they can place the bet right there. It's, it's just... Um, I, I think it's got some some issues, but that's a that's another topic. That is a whole um, topic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you guys won't be familiar with well, I'm assuming. Yeah, but what gambling did to cricket? How, how much betting there was apparently in cricket on in, in India specifically, really about you know huge money going on betting on things that the players were in on and. It, didn't destroy the game, but it certainly didn't do it any good. No. Tennis too, I think, yeah. is quite the same. You know, I asked a very famous tennis player once how high, how high up gambling and infiltrated tennis, and he said, number one. Mm. You know, so it's, you know, it's, um, it's a dangerous road to go down that one, I think. Mm, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, the irony being, you've always been able to bet on the golf in Europe, quotes, or specifically in the UK. It's one of the yeah. great, one of the great joys of going to an open, particularly for Americans. What used to be was this notion that you could, and you can gamble on all sorts of things. Who's going to win out of this three ball of players that nobody's ever heard of? Who's going to shoot the lowest score on any given day? It doesn't feel like it ever had that kind of impact, but it certainly feels different what Shaq's describing there, doesn't it? It's a, maybe there's a cultural thing or something there, but I agree. Well, it's that. changed it's, by the technology. Yeah. Uh, when you when you can access it on, on your phone on the course, and I, I that to me is the biggest difference. Instead of going the night before and placing a, a wager, it's somebody could actually do it in real time, and the push is for real time and interactivity and engagement and all that, all that stuff. Uh, and that's that's where I think it's it's taken it up a notch from uh, from 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 what they've done for a long time in the UK. You're probably such right. a traditionalist, Shaq. You probably like the little paper ticket they used to give you in the UK. You're probably one of those. Oh, I love it. No, I you're love, so stuck I, I in the past. Love, I, I still have from a horse racing of, of, of with a certain famous horse on it. I I love the the betting slip. It's it's definitely better. And and there's a great example, by the way. You don't you don't. Well, they do actually have in race betting, which is really insane, uh, just insanity. But uh, you bet. You see the horse before the race. You bet. You read the form, you do that, they run the race, you either cash your ticket or you don't. And again, the, the, the difference now with the golf is that more than any other sport, it can, it can be impacted. You know, I, I, can't, uh, I can't troll uh, Secretariat on Twitter and say, you know, you look like, you basically look like a donkey today and uh, <laughs> you, you, I don't think you're going to run worth crap. Well, if you do that to a golfer and you harass them and, and you, get, you get a troll farm going on somebody and they see that, or the relatives see it and they get distraught. I mean, it, it, there's so many ways it could go in such a dark, dark path that I, I, I feel for the players because I don't, I don't think the, the, I think a lot of them kind of know it. And uh, just the few chats I've had, and and they're sort of trusting the the executives. And I, I just don't think uh, people have. What is the what's the the NBA way of so they've gamed it out or they've they've gone to the thirty thousand foot level or whatever their current thing is? I don't think they have. Mm. Yeah. If nothing else, I learned a new term today. I didn't know a troll farm. <laughs> Me too. Ah. Right. Troll farms, bot oh, farms. Oh, there, there are many of them. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. I still, I can't help but, I 
can't help but keep going back, Shaq, to that notion that the four-inch T is the result of trying to move along a meeting at the USGA and what the potential impact of that might yeah, be. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a, a fantastic story. I mean, there's nobody, there's nobody at fault, and no. it was just one of those things. Um, yeah. yeah, make it four inches. Uh, Come on, let's get on with the they, big issues to talk about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They just get so many uh, wacky uh, inventions and uh, – this was this was a uh, at least 10 12 years ago. So uh, the idea of the of the launch conditions and being able to dial that in was not something that they were and frankly uh, I didn't really understand this until last fall when it was explained to me at the Zozo what what uh, kind of testing Bryson's done on on T height of 2 3 and 4 inches. Okay. Wow. There you go. And 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 um, Azinger was tracking it at the range because Tony Finau. I think we talked about it on one of the shows. It was hitting these ridiculous long. I mean, the ball straight off the club is just going straight up in the air. I, I and I I haven't been to Wildlife, Phil. Have you? I I don't know if that's part of the issue with this uh, 18th tee uh, <laughs> situation they had, where the where they're able to just launch it over a tree that they in the past couldn't have have gotten the ball that airborne that quickly. I don't know. Uh, there's a line of palm trees right down the left side of the of the tee box. It goes down about 100 yards, I think, or so off the tee. Big dogleg left par five and a couple bunkers down at the corner on the inside leg of the corner. And so the, the what you used to do is take a three-wood and just tow it in. The wind was typically from the right. You'd tow it in and see how big a hook you could hit and try to get it, but still get it past those bunkers. And if you could hook it enough, you could get it running down the fairway. If they're taking it over those trees now, that's unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, well, they made it OB, didn't they, Shaq? They made it OB just the start of the week. Yeah, yeah. on Wednesday night, they, they put it in. You know, they've been going there since 1965. And the, obviously not having a grandstand by the green. I was going to say the green was, yeah, that's right. The grandstand was but, the main figure. again, you just go, but what else is it that, that they're able to do that um, they haven't been able to do before? Because who cares, most players, who cares about a grandstand in your way? <laughs> if you can have a, if you have a nine iron into a par five instead of a five wood or a five iron and, uh, so it, to me, that gets to the whole launch thing again. That, uh, but I, I just, I haven't been on that tee and I don't know what, uh, what's in their way, but uh, the other thing that, 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 that grabbed me about what you were saying, Shaq, in terms of the equipment, well, I'd like to get your thoughts on this too, Phil. Uh, the B word has been pretty quietly the bifurcation. It seems to me all those changes that you suggested, Shaq, you could easily make and bring in without making major wholesale changes to the professional game, right. without it being particularly disruptive, where amateurs would be free to use a driver with a, a, a face thickness that was regulated you know, for elite play. They'd still be welcome right. to use it should they want to. And the same with the dimpled golf balls. You're free to use the ball with 20 less dimples if you want to. But if you're a, a professional or an elite player, you don't get the choice. That's the equipment you have to use. It seems quite seamless, I would have thought. I know. It's, it's, uh, there are enforcement issues for sure um, that, that would come up, and, and they don't want to be put in the position of having uh, players having – because it, it just doesn't happen where players have to police each other. Uh, and Phil can speak to that. You know the awkwardness of that. Um, that 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 is something that that to be aware of. But you're correct. the The idea, you know, that the manufacturers complain that they're boxed in by the the existing rules. But if you throw out that idea that well, what if what if the rules were split, and we unbox you a little bit in these areas for the average golfer, uh, and and then tight <clears throat> tighten up a few things for the pros. 
they they find that even more revolting because they want to mark it off of the players. But uh, it's 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 the USJ and the RNA who seem far more committed to a single set of equipment rules, from what I can. Yeah, like, that they have their issues. They think they'll become irrelevant. Uh, if that if there is a split and there are pro rules and amateur rules, which I think is um, I think is short sighted, and uh, but I also I I know um, not everybody agrees, but I, I I would love to have seen and Phil probably remembers it that uh, Charlie Reimer and at Golf Channel they they had they did a thing the uh, the relaxed rules and you look at that and you you know you think God that. And they, the governing bodies hated that. They, I, I think they sent all the bag tags that had basically the, the rules you could fit on the um, back of a bag tag. I think they sent those off to Africa or, or to uh, some, some melting place because they disappeared. But imagine if the governing bodies did that and said, hey, we have our rules of golf, but we've also created a set of relaxed rules for beginners or for kids or um, – uh, for those who just just you know really uh, want to play the, a very simplified version of the game, it would actually I think it like a lot of things would strengthen the the real rules, but would also help them get past all these issues we're talking about either uh, bifurcation or irrelevance and uh, I think the notion of that is just just not even something they would entertain. Phil, I not think. The best thing we could do for the game is make a ball that went further for about 50% of the people who play it. What percentage? 50 at least. Yeah. I mean, I mean most most women I watch play, I mean, how much better would the game be for the average woman who's, I guess, the average handicap's 20, I'm not sure, but if the ball went 50 yards, I mean, not that you're going to make it go 50 yards further, but how much better would the game hey, be? Plates. Now, wait a second. They say they've already maxed it out. How could they make it go uh, farther? Well, they make it out within the rules, but you change the rules so you let them make a ball that goes further, right? Yeah, yeah. So the small ball went further. I mean, it was probably yeah, yeah. it was probably it was perhaps more difficult to get up in the air. But wow, and there were so many as who for whom the game would be better if the ball went further, not not shorter. Yeah, you know. I believe you guys have talked about this, or at least maybe, Mike, you've written about it, about the idea of competition in the game. And I think I've read where you at least were writing about competition in Australia. Is Are we making a mistake in trying to govern the game to the extent that anytime you go play, you're, you're basically expected to play in accordance or adhere to rules that are consistent with a competition so we just relax your rules and say just go have fun go play yep you'll go play in a tournament <laughs> here's a set of rules for a tournament but other than that hey just just go play golf and have fun you you guys you set your force open you go play this morning mike you say well listen you know today you know we, you can do this you can do that if you want to you know whatever every every group sets up their own their own set of rules plays from whatever tees they want to play from and um do we have we kind of lost sight of what's important if we try to make everybody play to a set of rules every time they play the game. Yes. Well, I think the, the biggest problem in Australia, much more so than, than I think in America, is that pretty much every round people play is in a competition. We're obsessed with competition in golf. So everyone who plays today except me and well, we're playing with Sue O, who's an LPGA player. So we won't be in the competition, but every single other person who plays the golf course today will be in the club comp. Same on Saturday, same on the women all play on Tuesday, the men on Wednesday and Thursday. 
So, so much golf in Australia is played with a scorecard in, in your pocket. And we play by the rules. We, you know, there are no gimmies, there are no mulligans, there are, you know, but people play strictly by the rules. And I think the game in America is, the, the club game is not structured that way in America where, the, where there's much less formal competitive golf. We pay way too much for that. Oh, in Australia, it's well, they still have they still have strict handicap um, codes and whatnot, people trying to establish handicaps down to the tenth of a stroke kind of a thing. And the one phrase that is lost, when you start keeping track of score that closely, one thing about keeping score is that your scores, it doesn't matter if you're a plus five or if you're a 35 handicap, your scores, if you plot them, will form a bell curve if you plot enough of them. And that means that you'll have an average. And half the time, if the reason you're playing golf is for a score, half the time you're going to shoot worse than average and half the time you shoot better than average. So already it's predetermined that half the time you're probably going to be miserable when you leave because you played worse than average. Yeah. But on top of that, one of the great reasons to play, one of the things I always enjoyed playing and going out playing with friends was watch this yeah hey, can you mm. do this watch this watch this shot i'm going to try to hook it around that bunker i'm going to try to bring i'm going to do something the idea of to me that's a critical component of the game that's that's been lost a little bit when when the swing dictates the shot rather than the shot dictates the swing and you start everything becomes about a handicap or competition where's watch this go it goes by the wayside phil do you do you when you watch today's I mean, you do a lot of champions, you do tour events. Do you watch these guys today and feel like uh, it's fun? The, the way the game's played is is fun for them um, in a way that, or, or is it is it always just been a job for the golf pro? Do you see any change in, in that? I mean, we know a lot of them play way less for fun, and they don't even really play practice rounds, uh, money games anymore. Uh do you have any sense, kind of generationally, if there's been a change? I think that the older group that I played with on the PGA Tour Champions I cover now, at times the older group loved to compete. They loved to get in your face and look at you. And you know, <laughs> you were talking earlier about you know you talk about gambling about players jingling change in their pockets, Jeff. I was <laughs> I was playing with Jim Thorpe one time in the Canadian Open and oh. it was Friday afternoon, we're, I'm playing pretty good. I get up on what at that time is now number two, but it was number five, dog leg right, par five. And he hit first, and he's standing just to the right of the tee marker. They're just off the tee. And as I get over the ball, he took some plastic uh, plastic wrapper and started crinkling it in his fingers. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you son of a – all right. Freaking take this and take another little extra waggle and looked and I went <laughs> back and hit it as hard as I could hit it and I just as luck would have it I just flushed it and the minute I finished my follow through I turned right to him and I said how about that one <laughs> okay and it, it never happened again well see that yeah. that component of the game back when I grew up that was part of the game you yeah. know giving somebody the needle Sam Sneed went up to a friend of mine Tommy Acock who uh, at the hit, Tommy had never played with Sam Snead. It was the PGA Championship in San Antonio, and Tommy used to use that old uh, Tommy Armour driver that said LFF on the bottom of it. And it was big, high, thick, deep face. It was pretty toed-in face, pretty hooked face. And Tommy liked to hook everything. And Snead walked up on the very first tee and pulled Tommy's driver out of the bag and waggle, 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 tapped it on the ground, put it back in his bag. So that's the ugliest damn driver I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Right there on the first tee. I mean, that was part of it. That was fun. And so, yeah, you don't see a lot of that today. It's, it's all the players that played professional golf has always played for money. 
but today it's a little bit more business-like because everybody's got their teams. It's more regimented. You, you've got this this formula. I think that, that the PGA Tour players have accepted there's a formula to success that they all try to adhere to, and there was no such formula before. As Lanny Watkins likes to say, my, my sports psychologist was the bartender at the hotel I was staying at. <laughs> yeah, indeed. It starts a lot earlier too, doesn't it, Phil? I mean, most of the guys who are playing the tour now, not that they start playing the game earlier, but the notion of you've shown some talent that might be enough to get you to the top, so it's in the interest of a whole bunch of people outside of yourself necessarily to begin that journey and get you prepared for that as opposed to getting to later in life, perhaps even in college, and thinking, well, maybe I am good enough to have a go at it. It's a whole different thing, isn't it? And, boy, that's a, that's another three shows in itself right there, that question. You get into parents and, and parenting and trying to get their mm. kids to college and to pay for a college education and, and then putting together teams for their kids when they're 8, 10, 12 years old and instructors and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, they learn the game differently instead of going out and playing for fun that's right. and saying watch this and figuring things out. That whole formula for success that's on the PGA Tour permeates all the way down to the junior golf level. And you go to the, to the junior events, the AJGA, and that sort of thing, and you see players emulating what they see on TV. And it, So, yes, it has crept all the way down into that level. And the ramifications of that are quite possibly that the players who play at a tour level that grew up playing that way maybe don't enjoy the game as much because they didn't grow up enjoying the game. They grew up playing the game uh, with an end in sight. Yeah. Well, there's now academies making... You know, whose who's, who's entire livelihood depends on the notion of selling that dream, isn't there, to parents and would-be players, you know, that kids go and start attending academies at a young age to get good enough to turn to turn pro eventually and because the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is so much bigger than it's ever been. So there's you're right, there's three shows in that. There's loads and loads of issues. Yeah, you, can really, you can really get going on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm just glad that you, t- that you and Clates are going to get the emails and the tweets about why – playing competition golf all the time is the very best thing and why you should never play without a card in your pocket. I've had enough. I've, I've done my fair share of columns about that and had uh, had the response. Although I will say, Clates, it, it really is, it turns, we talk about the things that turns people off golf and this golf boom during the pandemic and people coming back and playing and courses being full and all those sorts of things. One of the things that turns people off the game when they first are drawn to it is very quickly they get swamped by this golf culture that oh you must have a handicap you must play competition golf this is the only way to experience in the game and in australia that's certainly true isn't if you join a golf club it's not just the expectation that the the likelihood is about the only sort of golf you're going to get to play is going to be competition if you're not wired that way lots of people i imagine walk away is is it sue's sister has taken up the game recently sue's sister has taken up the game and she's got no interest in comp as i understand it She's been playing for a couple of years and still doesn't have a handicap. Yeah. It's really got – she's kind of half interested in scoring occasionally, but she just wants to go out and hit the ball well and play golf and learn how to play. And, you know, the other women are saying, yeah, you should get a handicap. And she said, well, I don't really want a handicap. I just want to play golf with my friends and hit the ball well and learn how to play. And she's really got no interest in, yeah. in, in, in scoring before she can play. And I said, start scoring when you're good enough to break 80. But – yeah, you know, um, which is kind of perhaps that's a little arrogant to say, but I was going to say it's going, it's going to eliminate an awful lot of club golfers from ever yeah. playing, from ever scoring at King Clates. <laughs> Phil said something the other day, well, a while ago now, about is there really any difference between shooting eighty-five and eighty-seven? Is it really that important? And I don't think it is, but you know, I, we have DM discussion with Scott Fawcett offline, and he said, "Well, you know, it's, or maybe Lou it was, but you know." 
he thought that it was incredibly important whether you shot 85 or 87. So, well, what difference does it really make if you're shooting 85 or 87? You know, who cares? Yeah. That's not what golf's about. It's certainly not to me, but to others. The, the score is the entire thing, yeah. you know, the entire reason for playing this. Yeah. And they can't imagine why you would, you're not playing, you know, Scott Forster's argument, you're not playing golf if you're not scoring. Well, I consider what I play golf, playing golf. But having put a scorecard in for 40 weeks a year for 20 years on a tour, I'm not interested in going out and worrying about whether I'm shooting 72 or 3 or 5 or 6 or 78. And Finchie played a – in Baker Prince, we played a pro-am in Sydney a couple of years ago, and he said, I just detest shooting 77. And if you detest shooting 77, then surely we want more out of golf than – we're testing it when we're finished. And for, for a subset of players like us, I suspect, if you're just shooting 77, don't count. Just go play golf and enjoy the game for what it is. It's not just about scoring. Yeah. There's, there's something there about a loss of match play as well, isn't there, Shaq? And what that's changed about the game where 77 didn't matter as long as it was one less than the 78 the bloke you were playing with shot. In which case, you, yeah, you I mean, that ship sailed a while ago. And yeah, it yeah. has definitely uh, solidified that mentality. And it's, um, uh, and yet, and yet, as we know, match play is, uh, is a, as a product is, is, made huge strides in recent years that people love to watch the cup events and the match play events and the head to head and the the younger audience that they so covet has really come to love it. But yet it hasn't translated to, uh, additional formats and, and events, which is, is too bad. Well, similar to stroke play. If you had too much of it, it would probably lose some of its luster as well. There's got to be some mix in there somewhere about changing the formats that this, this steady diet of 72 hole stroke play, 48 weeks a year, Phil Blackmay, you've got to wonder whether it's ultimately in the best interests of the professional game and entertainment, but it's what we have and it uh, doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. There's a million other things we could talk about, but we better not. I've just got an eye for the time, and I know that Clates has got to go off and play non-competitively with his regular group this morning. You can have a competition with Sue O'Clates and see who wins out of that. You well, can play no, we're having a match, so um, we, we always have great matches. It's great fun, yeah. I mean, we love competing and playing matches. But... How's she playing, Sue? Great girl. What a, what a wonderful young woman she is. How's she playing? Is she going all right? When's she going back to the States? Big year for her, I think. I think she's going back in March. Those The, the two events that start the LPJ season in Australia are cancelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go from there to the, the ones in, in Asia normally, in Thailand and Singapore. But they're in May, apparently. So I think she's heading back to the States in March to play. Well. She's got a couple of months here, so... There's a mixed tournament on the Mornington Peninsula next week, which he's playing in. Kind of a Jeff Ogilvy kind of he's got his face on the tournament poster, which would be good. So um, she's playing in that, and, and she'll kind of bumble around. She's moving into a new house, so she's, it was exciting for a 24 year old to buy a house and move in. So she's doing that before she gets back on the LPGA tour in, in March. Good luck to uh, good time. Give it my best when you see her. And there's some interesting mix of events coming up. Those mixed events that uh, that are coming up on the Australian schedule, and it'll be interesting to see how they pan out. So best of luck to her with that. And just before we go, Shaq, I almost forgot. 
Tell people about the quadrilateral and what it is that you're doing. This touches on one of our other favourite topics, the media and the changing role of the media and the way people consume it. Tell people what the quadrilateral is, where they can find it. Yeah, it. you say that. You say it so well. It took me a while to uh, to, to be able to pronounce quadrilateral without uh, stumbling and tripping. But obviously the name is taken from the uh, a famous quote uh, ref- referred uh, or, or actually get, uh, attributed quite often to O.B. Keeler, but it was actually a writer named George Trevor uh, referring to the Grand Slam in, in 1930. And, um, you know, it was, uh, I have not been a fan of newsletters or, or it's not, I shouldn't say that. I've not been a fan of emails. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I thought, God, why, why do I want to bore people with another email? But then I started, I was encouraged to, to read a few people. And I, I increasingly read some people on my phone who have a newsletter uh, and I've increasingly started my day or at the end of my day reading some uh, tremendous, and they're all kinds, roundups, um, different, different, the very first person, one person writing. And I've really come to uh, love them because uh, it's a, it's, there's a little bit of different writing tone for the format. And then it's also just free of an annoying pop-ups and bouncing and, and, and uh, cookie acceptance requests and and all that so it's a combination of the reading experience being better and then also uh the idea that um you know a blog doesn't doesn't uh it's hard to make money and i mean i would i would love to see phil start a newsletter but it it also because when you write for the internet and it's a public site and even though it's your what i've done for a long time and i've done some crazy i've written some i've done satire i've done all sorts of stuff i just don't it, I don't feel as comfortable in that format um, and, and as inspired to sit down and really work on something. And the newsletter, you're writing, you feel like you're just writing a, a long email to people that you know uh, are, are, are like-minded or are interested in the same topic. And so I just uh, have had a, long, a sense for a while that the majors are going to be the, uh, the, the stars of the game for, for a while and they're always going to be great. And I love everything about them. I love all the news and notes, the, the 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 business side, the architecture, the course setup, the prognosticating, who's trending well, uh, the travel when that happens again around them, just everything about them. And so I thought it'd be fun to to really focus on that, and and put up things that that I even wouldn't put on the blog, uh, news and notes and things. So that's really how it came about. And I had kind of a plan to ease into it. And then obviously the news dictated a little little more aggressive approach here in the first week. Uh, it's coming up on the one-week anniversary as we sit here. And uh, I'm going to obviously – it'll change in a few ways, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. And uh, I highly recommend it uh, for a lot of different people and, and who, who like to write and want to write to a certain audience. And Very personal, just, isn't it? It's, it's got a, a future. It's almost podcasty in a way. It's very personal. If people yes. like your way Correct. of doing things, they can just get your sort of take. And that might be a bit of the future of the media. And I think, Phil, you probably don't realise, and Clates, you to a certain extent as well, if you look forward 10 or 15 years, there'll be a market for just individuals who people like. And you guys do it for different reasons, but I come from a media background where it's been how I've made my livelihood in the past, and there's real questions about how you continue to do that in the future, but it's going to be a lot more of that, isn't it, Shaq? Of people like Jeff Shackelford, so people will pay to read Jeff Shackelford. People like Phil Blackmar, they'll pay to get Phil's content. Not huge amounts, but enough of them so that you can make them. So I wish you all the best. It's an interesting experiment in a lot of ways uh, about the future of our industry, but it's also sort of telling about how 
you know, the, the way people consume their media is shifting. So there's a it, it will be a paid subscription. Is I know there's already an option to pay, but at the moment I think it's free as well as a check. But that'll be the idea. Yeah, I'm is that doing everything be a, for free for a while. That Substack yeah. is the host, and they they really recommend you always keep um, some some of them free. And I I'm not. Um, I've been amazed how many people have already paid, given that I've said it's going to be free for a while. But I will start to put things behind paywalls, and you can put podcasts yeah, and, exactly. and interviews and things that won't be for everybody. Um, but it's fascinating. That's their mentality is that uh, a lot of people will just subscribe even even if they're not really getting – um, anything significantly different than the than the free person because they want to support or they're enjoying it, and and you've kind of eased them into it. And you've built the trust, and and they just feel compelled to uh, reward you, which is the one thing that I had to to kind of wrap my head around because I said to them, "Well, I've got this blog, and I've got an audience that's been coming to it since around you know for over sixteen, seventeen years now," and. Um, but they still uh, sort of uh, implored me to, to ponder that. So, um, yeah, so, so far it's it's all free. But obviously I want to take care of the people who've paid with, with some things. And as we get closer to the majors, Q&As and uh, their podcast element behind the paywall, we, we, we will discuss. But it, it, it's, 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 a be- it's in beta form. But it's, it works. It works. Um, it's one or two steps. So it's... Um, but it, but as you say, the main thing is what you you when you sit down to write. I I still feel like I can be a little bit snarky and I can still be a little bit um I can be opinionated. But there is something about the format, um for somebody like me, a, a gentleman like Phil, and certainly a gentleman like Clates don't need this. But it does make you and you know you're delivering this to somebody's email. Uh, address it, it does change things a little bit, and uh, I think for the better, though. I think in a good way. You're not you're not thinking of hits. You're not worried about That's right. yeah. conflicts. It's a combination of of very disparate things, but it's it's uh, so far so good. I'm really enjoying it, and um, I haven't gotten much feedback, but I've I've gotten a lot of nice. I've done really well on the signups, way better than I, I would have thought for January, and, and you know, I've signed <laughs> with up a lot going on in the world. Yeah, I've signed up. I've been enjoying it, and I suspect we'll continue to urge others and i put the same thing on twitter if you feel like jeff's been a positive influence in the golf media over the years and i think you have then it's worth contributing a bit and helping you out sign up and get some good news not like you sign up just to help you you get something you get jeff views come to your inbox every week you're not just not just giving you money for being a good bloke yeah yeah i am providing things and then uh and like i said this week was a a little more newsworthy but you know it's not often that a major venue uh, gets changed and i'm focusing on the majors yeah absolutely let's uh it had to be uh, had to be done. Enough of all that. Well, best of luck with it, and we won't bore the listeners anymore. But uh, there'll be more to come with that. Phil, can you please write more? Seriously, no. Come on, no. Man. come <laughs> on. I don't, I don't write as easily as Jeff does, and Mike does, and, and you as well, Rod. I, every now and then it comes to me. I have to work on it for a while. It takes a while to get the words right, and it it ends up with a decent product on occasion. But but it's not something I can do consistently. I just kind of have to pick my moments. I'm in the right mood. I have something that I'm passionate enough about. And I can be patient enough to, you know, to get it to come out the way I want. Um, so I just gonna, I'm just gonna pick my moments. I'm gonna pick my moments. You know, right now I'm into fly casting and doing other stuff, and I'm just gonna pick my moments when I write something. 
Well, it's frustrating for those of us who read it, but it's always worth it when it comes out. I'll put a link in the show notes so that people can go and check out the blog. I think you can subscribe to it. There's a follow button there, I think, so you can be uh, alerted when something new comes up. But it's always worth reading when it comes up, as was this one. There'll be a link to this particular piece. We barely touched on it in the end, although we touched on a lot of the issues that it talked about. Well worth a read. Good thought-provoking stuff. Thanks for your time today, Phil. been great to chat to you. It's great. This is a great uh, great panel today with all you guys. I really enjoy being included. It's uh, fun listening to you guys. Oh, you, you, you're a more than worthy addition to the group. And Clay, it's always fantastic to chat with you, my friend, and uh, looking forward to doing so again soon. But thanks for your time today. It's been great to catch up. Thanks, Rod. Thank you, Phil, for coming on. It was great. Brilliant. And it's Clay's fault you came on. He's the one who sent me the email. I said, we better get Blackmail to talk about this blog so you can hold that against him. Uh, that's it for episode 109 of State of the Game. Hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We will be back, as always, at some point to do it all again here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.